The settlement at San Malo in St. Bernard Parish in Louisiana was the first Filipino settlement in America around 1763. It was settled by Filipinos leaving Spanish galleons which were sailing through Louisiana waters. We learn about the influence on the food of Louisiana by those very settlers. It's on tip of the tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Randy Gonzalez, endowed professor in Southern Studies and coordinator of the Professional Writing Program at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. He has researched and written about Filipinos in Louisiana. In 2021, he was recognized by Positively Filipino as a remarkable and famous Phil-Am. Welcome, Randy. Liz, thanks for having me. So I really do want to talk about Filipinos in Louisiana, especially about their food contributions to the food of Louisiana. And I think that there are so many and mostly they're so accepted as part of the cuisine that we aren't even aware of of where it came from. So I hope you can shed some light on that today. Yeah, most people don't really realize that Filipinos arrived in Louisiana as early as the Spanish colonial period of Louisiana, right? So we're talking either the late 18th century or the early 19th century. Mm-hmm. And settled in the marshlands, particularly around Bayou Barataria, then southern shore of Lake Bourne. The fishing village of St. Malo is, is, is the first permanent Filipino settlement in the United States. And so what brought them here? Well, there are a bunch of factors, but you have to consider that the Philippines was a Spanish colony. And Filipinos were sailing in the Manila galleon trade for for centuries, right? So you have Filipino seamen that are now, by the 19th century, all over the the globe, right? Sailing in ships from across the globe. And so New Orleans is what, the third biggest port in the United States around this time? Mm -hmm. So it would, prior to it being the United States, but in North America, right? So New Orleans is a major port. So Filipino sailors would have naturally come to the area. And sailors, as they do, would leave a port, you know, leave their ship at a port and stay for a while and wait for the next ship, right? This was kind of, you know, the the tradition of sailors. They stayed for a while, they moved on. And so you have to think about, you know, New Orleans as a a Spanish colony and Spanish speakers, particularly in St. Bernard area, right? You know, down in in the St. Bernard parish that Filipinos might have felt comfortable staying in Louisiana, staying in New Orleans longer. So with all the ships, it seemed almost natural that Filipinos would settle. And then once momentum kind of builds and you have Filipinos starting little villages, starting, you know, settling in different areas and word of mouth, oh, we have a 
we have St. Malo, a village, a fishing village down on the southern shore of Lake Bourne, and suddenly more people are coming, right? They're sending letters home saying, hey, won't you come to Louisiana? So this is kind of how this kind of momentum, so Filipino migration to Louisiana was not like in one big ship, right? Like other migrants came, like we had, you know, the Isleños all came on one ship from the Canary Islands, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Or the Acadians are all coming on one ship. It's like two and sailors came, at a time. <laughs> and they came, at, they came as families often. And I don't think that if you're leaving the ship that you were part of the crew of, that there would be very many women there were no, so is there are no women. So this, they're called Manila men, right? There is, these are the, the men, the Filipino men who kind of settled in Louisiana. And so because there weren't any Filipino women on the ships, um, then did that also mean that there was a lot more interaction um, by the men with the women of of the area where they were settling. That, that's right. So they married across race and ethnic lines, right? So we have, you know, Italian later on, um, Irish, Native American, um, African American. We had, so there's lots of intermarriage. Islenos, so Spanish. So we, so that when we, we, the culture, when we think about food, right? Starts to really start to mingle right there, right just away. in the first <laughs> in <laughs> through marriage, right? So right. you have like Filipinos talking about making Italian cookies for Saint Joseph altar, right? <laughs> you have so the the blending of food. So following food traditions for Filipino Louisiana can get really difficult initially at that you know at the marriage point, <laughs> right? And I can also imagine that though that the the landscape of Louisiana might have felt comfortable also to Filipinos because of all the water and the little islands and that might have been something also that was familiar? Yes, and there was the land in the, you know, for Filipinos who live near the coast, right, it would have been familiar, but there are many Filipinos who are living, who are coming from the mountainous areas too, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So there is this part of it that, yes, it was probably familiar enough for, for many Filipinos, but they were also seamen, right? So they were living on the sea anyway, right. they were sailors. So, you know, when, when they talk about going to St. Malo, when the Kali O'Hearn writes about it, he talks about this long, arduous journey from New Orleans to St. Malo. It took about a day by sailboat. Well, that journey is nothing for a Filipino who's just traveled from the Philippines to New Orleans, right? <laughs> right. On, a, on, a ship, on, a, on, a, on a ship. So, I mean, they said that the, what was comfortable for most people at sea, you know, what was discount, wasn't comfortable, was really comfortable for Filipinos because they were used to being at the sea. The Manila men were, were seamen. They were, right. you know, they were, they were in, uh, sailors for a reason. They loved the sea enough. Um, so, so being fishermen, and out at St. Malo, and that was kind of their advantage is they would live further out than the Spanish fishermen who were staying in Procterville and Shell Beach. They were staying at St. Malo so they could fish all along the Southern shore and into the Gulf of Mexico where it'd be harder for others to sail out and come back, right? It would be a more a longer journey. Longer trip. And they were able to access all of these basically free food, right? The, the, the oysters and the fish were just all available. And so 
in many ways, the Filipinos helped kind of establish the lake-borne fishing industry, you know, with the Spanish who were, who were there as well, but the Spanish would stay closer into at Proctorville. And Filipinos, by going out, established this whole industry of providing New Orleans with seafood from Lake Bourne. Yeah, I think it is really an, an important thing because having fresh seafood as opposed to something that, especially in those days before refrigeration, no amount of palmetto leaves is going to keep the sun from baking all of this stuff and making it bad. <laughs> right. And you, we, we see this, and there was a conflict between Spanish and Filipino fishermen. And the newspapers in New Orleans were like, look, the Spanish have this monopoly on this market, right? And the Filipinos, we have to protect the Filipinos, basically, so they could bring more fish to the market. They wanted more fish, right? And the Spanish were seeing their, their little threat to, the, to their monopoly on the area because of the Filipinos were able to bring in more fish from down the coast. Yes. Through St. Malo. So we have the same kind of the new immigrant coming in a story, but the New Orleans markets were really pulling for the new immigrant because they were able to bring in more fish. More fish and probably a superior product. Right. Yes. And of course, who doesn't want the superior product? <laughs> so, so let's talk about some of the influences besides the actual fishing influences. And the one thing that I want to talk about, now it's not the only thing, but the one thing I want to make sure we talk about is is the dried shrimp industry. Right. So tell me about that. Well, so the dried shrimp industry, so for a while, St. Malo was the, the place where Filipinos were. And then, you know, we have the dried shrimp industry starting up in Barataria Bay. And it was kind of a, it, there were many nationalities there, but Chinese traders were able to, send the shrimp off to China, right? So there were entrepreneurs from, from Chinese entrepreneurs who were able to send the shrimp off. And there was a large Filipino you know, fishing force. There mm -hmm. were Chinese fishermen as well, but there were more Filipino fishermen. Mm -hmm. um, so you have this kind of basically Asian American starting of a shrimp drying industry where you have Chinese and Filipinos starting an industry in Barataria Bay area. And there were like a hundred shrimp drying platforms. The most notable and largest was Manila Village. So the, that's where, you know, with Filipinos thinking about Manila Village and a few other shrimp drying platforms, we really think about the dried shrimp get equated to Filipinos, but there was a large Chinese influence. Chinese influence well, too. Right. Well, and so do you think that the shrimp drying was something that even in the Philippines that the Chinese had influenced? Oh, well, the, it's hard to tell with seafood who influenced because, I mean, we, indigenous peoples were fishing and, and, and shrimping and all of that before and, Spanish colonialism. It's hard to see how that's, you know, what's what's native and what is is not. Is right. Well, yeah, people are are so, so much in contact that it's right. really hard. It's hard to ferret that out. And so what, what was the, the method of drying the shrimp? You say there's shrimp drying platforms, but what does, what does that mean? So basically they would, um, 
they would catch the shrimp there really close, right? So they're very close to the source of shrimp. And then they bring them in and they boil them in vats and salt water. And then they'd lay them out on these huge football field sized platforms of cypress. And they would let them dry in the sun. And because it rained so much, the platforms were not flat. They were kind of wavy. So they could rake the shrimp up to the top and let the water run through the canals mm -hmm. so they wouldn't get to, you know, wash away in the storms they come, right? But basically, they were just drying in the sun. And then when they would dry, they would step on them or do a, what they be, is known now as a shrimp dance. They would kind of just step on the shrimp and the, the husk would fall off right and you'd see just the shrimp so when you go to the you know the grocery store here now and you buy dried shrimp you see there are no shells on them mm -hmm. the philippines often dried shrimp will have the shells on them and so they're just kind of dried whole like that but here they they, they stepped on them so we just have the flesh and so this was a barefoot operation i would presume they no, they put canvas around on the bottom of their feet, like burlap. Oh, yes. Okay. So not, but not shoes, because I could imagine that might really damage the shrimp. Right. And yes. Yeah. And there were some kind of articles about, you know, like in the newspaper about them stepping on the shrimp and the hygiene of it and all of this, you know, over some time. It's, <laughs> but uh, it's, but it, eventually I think everyone came to understand that, you know, their sun drying it and they were, just, it was a, it was a good product. And what they would do then was just put them in big barrels and often send, send them off to China or send them to Chinese markets in, in the United States. In Louisiana, they were more of a bar snack or a snack than, uh -huh. than for recipes, right? Well, even now you go to checkout and it's by the candy and the kind of miscellaneous, right? Right, right. So that, it's not... that impulse purchase when yeah, you're checking right. out, yes. <laughs> and I grew up eating them as a snack. My, my grandmother had a jar, like those little bell jars full of dried shrimp. And every time we go over, we put our hands out and she'd fill up our hands with dried shrimp. And so if you ask around, I mean, somebody, there are a few dishes made with them, but there's not as many as you would think, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's a little hard to find people who cook a lot with dried shrimp. But in Filipino food, we use dried shrimp quite a bit. And is it slightly fermented just by the drying process? I, I don't, technically, I don't think it's fermentation, right? It's just sun-dried. Mm -hmm. You know, and they would also dry fish, but they were not, they were more for local consumption. Mm -hmm. So so small trout, white trout, probably, you know, they would, they would also put them in barrels, salt them and then dry them. Mm -hmm. So, but the export product, the main product were the shrimp. Well, my grandmother, who used to use a lot of anchovies, which were also salted and were something that she used for seasoning all the time. When she ran out of anchovies, she always had dried shrimp on the shelf just in case she ran out of anchovies. And she would use the dried shrimp instead and use that as that sort of umami base in her tomato sauce and in other kinds of cooking, just because it served the same purpose. Right. We had one dish we ate with dried shrimp and it was called sotahong, which really is a, is a bean thread. And it's a Filipino word for, the, for bean threads that you can find in most of the grocery stores here, even when I was young. And uh, that is about as far as the, the dish really goes as being Filipino. I think it was made 
you know, by my grandmother and, and friends in the Marini area around their Italian neighbors because it has this rich tomato sauce. It has uh-huh. this stewed pork in it and then dried shrimp and, and, and all. And these bean threads would basically soak up all the tomato sauce. So it feels like an Italian Filipino dish <laughs> as much as it does a Filipino dish. When I tried to find that dish in the Philippines, I was like, looked at like I was crazy, right? <laughs> and then I asked my wife to make it and she made something completely different, right? It was like a soup. And I'm like, okay, this is this is a, a New Orleans Filipino dish. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's what happens here a lot in, in New Orleans, that uh, people just adopt each other's practices and you get new dishes and then if they taste good it may only be your family that has ever experienced it you know but still it it remains a tradition in your family right that's what i'm finding out i'm working on this food waste project and i'm finding out that my family and what we eat is just different sometimes from what other people eat and how we in the processes that we prepare things right you know, especially my household now where it's Filipino and Louisiana mix, we kind of blend our t- traditions and techniques. <laughs> right. And, and, and so the dishes are kind of uniquely our own. Well, so how are you doing this study so that you can kind of tease out what is actually Filipino influence, what is some kind of mishmash of whatever's going on in New Orleans at the time? What really can you trace back to Filipino traditions? How, how are you doing that? Do you have a special methodology you've developed to kind of tease out these, these kind of questions? Well, it's really difficult. What I'm really, I'm relying on a small references to foods like within, when, when people are talking about Filipino food, you know, in the, in the 1800s, you know, like, it's just like one or two references, you know, they eat a lot of raw fish. So it's like, okay, what? So now I'm thinking, okay, if they're eating raw fish, what fish were they catching, you know, in Lake Bourne, you know, how would it have been prepared in the Philippines at the time, right? Because this is different, you know, we've had in the Philippines was colonized by the U.S. at some point, right in the 1898. So there's a colonial influence from the U.S. that begins there. So this is before that. What was what were people eating in the Philippines before then? What would they have thought to do to this fish to eat it raw? So I'm having to kind of try to make these connections that in the end are just will end up being a lot of speculation because it's two dot, dots that are very far apart, right? That I'm trying to connect, but it, it'll make it'll have some kind of logic to it at least. Yeah. So I don't can't say that I can prove anything that the Manila men were eating. They were saying they were eating raw fish. I know they were eating probably red fish, you know, cause that's what they were catching sheep's head, you know, mm-hmm. but I don't know exactly how they prepared it. And I don't know, I can't, if I can know that but I can know what the possibilities were. Right. And then of course, to be able to find out what was being eaten in the Philippines at that time, how much writing is there about the food of the Philippines, say, prior to the 1850s or something? There's, there's, there's not a lot, right? So there, it all comes later, referencing back, um, you know, so you have some, you know, Filipino cookbooks that talk about native recipes, but there are not as many, that there are a lot of Spanish-influenced recipes, right? So 
And then when the US comes, they start teaching young girls um, home economics with American recipes like gumbo and shrimp creole in the textbooks in the Philippines to teach young girls how to cook <laughs> Filipino for how cook food cook, right? So, so you start to then have this really mix up of, of the language around food um, that is hard to kind of pull apart. Oh, that, and, and it really, it, it kind of steals away people's heritage when you start imposing other kinds of recipes on people. That's really tough. Just right. to figure out how, how to interpret that. That's, that's really difficult. And the Spanish did that earlier by imposing language or like taking away the non-written Filipino languages, like taking the writing away from Filipino languages. So there was nothing passed along. So a lot of the foods have Spanish names. You have, you know, like that might not really, that were probably like adobo is a native Filipino dish, but it's got, a, has a Spanish name because it's similar to something that, that the Spanish recognize. So... I know Tagalog, but are there other languages in the Philippines? Yeah, there are many other languages. Yeah. So. So, so that makes it really difficult too, because it right. depends on where you are. Yes, it, yes. So the dishes, you know, you look for dishes and there, so different families here will have different names for similar dishes, right? Because of the, the language differences and where they grew up and what their parents called them. And so, so there's, which makes it really fascinating, right? So many islands, so many regions using so many local ingredients in the Philippines so that there, that dishes have lots of varieties, like kind of like gumbo here, right? But even more because the regions are different. So the, the different types of seafood, the different types of say souring agents to make a sour soup because that region has this, you know, abundance of this and not this. Right, right, yes. And- so did you find that there was a written record early on in any of the, 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 the logs or other reports of the Spanish when they, were, when they were there making a written record that was really early? Yeah, I'm not really, I have not been in the archives in the Philippines, but um, there's a great book that I found and it's called The Governor's governor's general's kitchen and a woman started writing a book about you know early filipino recipes and then the spanish influence and basically she's like i'm never writing this book so here's all of my notes <laughs> oh. <laughs> and it's like amazing to have all of this you know stuff in spanish some of it's in tagalog and then some of it's translated into english but to have a, this resource of basically her notes and her, her ideas for what this book would be, not actually the book, I think is probably maybe better than the book because it's not as selective, right? It's, you have, you have probably things in here that might not have made it into the book, little stories. Yeah, and it's so, a brain dump. <laughs> yes, and it's like every researcher should have this for the books that never get written, right? <laughs> like, here are all of the things I, I started with. So you don't have to repeat that same process, right? You know, because it's it's a great resource and allows me to get in, get information that I just wouldn't have. Right, right. You know, my research is very limited in that regard. It's it's going to be, you know, not 
a major scholarly work for, for Filipino Louisiana cuisine. It's, it's, it's kind of just skimming the surface of, of this stuff. Well, so if somebody held your feet to the fire and said, all right, so give me the synopsis of the influence of Filipino food on the food of Southern Louisiana, what would you say? I would, I mean, dried shrimp is the biggest thing, right? And so the, the presence of dried shrimp and the continued presence of dried shrimp, you know, in, in, you know, in grocery stores now, right? So that, you know, I don't know how it's influenced, say the economy and things like that, but I think individual homes around Louisiana are using dried shrimp in ways that I, that I don't even know about, right? And so it, it has some kind of influence. When we think about just the shrimping and fishing industry, right, as, as a whole, you know, Filipinos were willing to come early on when Louisiana was begging for settlers and help establish those industries. Uh -huh. And, you know, and they've moved on, right? And other, others have taken over because it was a difficult job, right? It wasn't something they wanted to stay in forever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, um, but it is kind of like establishing at, a, at an important time in, the in, in Louisiana when Louisiana was still fig founding, developing, right? And trying to get immigrants from all over. Yes. You no know, begging, you know, sending out flyers to Europe, please come to Louisiana. Because often people would come, they'd look around and they just go up north. Go back. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the next train out of here? I can't live here. The Filipinos are willing to stay, right? Uh -huh. And and they were willing to to work in those in those difficult environments. So it's I think in New Orleans, it's so hard to to talk about influence. Mm -hmm. It's so hard to think that there, there are no straight lines and the lines go all over. And I don't, and then to give credit to one is to take away credit from another in some ways, right? Mm -hmm. So we have all of these zigzagging lines. And I think it's all about the, the South Louisiana community developing all of these things together, right? Because there were Italian, Croatians, all, you know, Chinese <laughs> there were so many people on these shrimp platforms said it, it wasn't just Filipino, it wasn't just Chinese. There was a whole lot of influence and a whole lot of people, you know, who were willing to go out there and do that work. And, and as we say, food is a social invention. Right. It is not something that some person has an epiphany and all of a sudden changes food. It's definitely something that you develop right next to somebody else and you steal a little from them and they steal a little from you. Not that it's thought of as theft, but you understand right. what I'm saying. And then you, you say, you've got this great idea. I'm going to do that too. And then it starts to be copied. And then pretty soon, nobody knows where it came from. And, but it's, it's adopted by everyone. So it just happens. Yeah, and it's, you know, I was looking through my mom's old recipes, and, and there are recipes that are, some are like typed on, you know, index cards, some of them are written on like receipts, and some of them like are then rewritten into another book, and it'll be like Joan's recipe, and Bill's recipe, and you know, 
and they'll have all these things that you they must have gone to dinner parties and said oh what's that i want to eat that and then, uh -huh. and and of course when they cooked it they might have said well i'm going to add this to it and i'm going to add that and then it became their own recipe uh -huh. at that point right <laughs> that became mom's recipe a grandma's recipe we didn't know that was jones before <laughs> right right and even things change because you don't have an ingredient but you really want to fix it so you substitute something else and you think oh this is even better just by accident. And so it changes that way too. And that's how I imagine that Sotahong dish came about, right? Like it was all, it would have a chuete in a anato seed, right? To make it red. So I can imagine somebody saying, it's supposed to be red. Okay, I'll make it red. <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> You know, no. so it, it's, and in Filipino Louisiana cooking, you know, it's always that adaption. And any, well, anybody, any part of the diaspora, anybody that's out of their home culture, you know, I lived overseas for a while and the most difficult thing to find was smoked sausage, right? So, you know, and so you could make some adaptions, but you learn to cook a gumbo without sausage, maybe a smoked paprika, right? To kind of add the smoky flavor. Right. You know, you learn to make those adaptions that you wouldn't have to make here, but I had to make overseas. That's, that's right. And you just, you still want, you want a certain flavor of home and you're willing to tolerate it not being perfect, but it's at least, it at least feeds your nostalgia for the moment. <laughs> and sometimes you can make it better if you, or it's That's what right. your family gets used to. And it's like, this is ours. Yes. You know, it's not what I started out with, but um, it's less fatty. It has, you know, it's healthier. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. No, I, I totally agree with you. I think that um, we're always, we're always adapting or adopting or something. My grandmother had a story. She lived next door to someone that was her neighbor and her neighbor gave her a jar of gefilte fish and said, here, this is, I made this, this is for you. And so my grandmother who grew up in Sicily heard it as filthy fish. And so she said, when I came over, my neighbor gave me this jar of filthy fish. I don't understand what I'm supposed to do with it because she was afraid to eat it because it was called filthy fish. Of course, I was a child. And so I opened the jar and started eating it. And I went over to the neighbor and I said, oh, this was so good. What is it called? And she was telling me, oh, well, that's filthy fish. So I came back to my grandmother and I said, we're not going to die. It's okay to eat it. And it's really good. So you should eat it. And then she ate it. And so, you know, it was that kind of little exchange. And so then there was always gefilte fish in my grandmother's antipasto. And she would put it out because she liked it. And so there with the salami and the olives and the other sorts of things that you might have had to nibble on before the pasta course was gefilte fish. Oh, excellent. <laughs> And who would have thought? <laughs> yes. And our home culture of food is not one culture, right? It's influenced by so many other cultures. Yes. So yes. I lived in the Middle East. So we start, we bring things in. We lived in Korea. My wife makes kimchi now, you know, 
So we, we, it's just all part of our regular diet now and, and our house is then unique from others because we have just, we're not, you know, a monocultural yes. eating household. I just think that your, your gut culture is much more rich because of uh, the variety of foods that you're eating. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and, you know, with Filipino food, thinking about what Filipinos are eating here, a lot of them, you know, Filipinos are coming from different regions. They're yes. also coming here maybe from the Middle East first, or they're coming from Hong Kong first. Yes. You know, so they're coming from different areas, or they lived in California for a while, then came to Louisiana. So all of that kind of influences how they cook, what they cook, you know, what is acceptable to go in a particular dish. Mm -hmm. um, but for my wife, who's first generation Filipino, there's a lot of, um, of tradition. She wants the tradition of home. She wants it to taste like home. Uh -huh. And I think it fills, it fills that um, the void, right? Of you know, she's not home, just as I wanted my red beans to be camellia red beans, <laughs> because the red beans in Korea were not quite the same, right? Yes. You know, so it, it's like it has to, there's something about the tradition, like you said, it has to be comfortable enough. And then there's some breaking away that's possible, but on, you know, even some dishes, no, the red beans have to be cooked this way. I'm sorry. Yes, you, you yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes, I think we all, we all have that. And um, as exciting as it is to go away and eat at uh, in other places and learn all about their food, it's always nice to come home. It really is. And, and taste the taste of home, for sure. Yes, and the smells of home. I mean, we the, the particular, you know, the roux cooking, or in our case, the kimchi on the shelf, or the or the bagawang, you know, the smelly fish paste <laughs> being cooked, you know, which is beautiful to us, but not necessarily to my son's friends when they come in. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we are fortunate in Louisiana to have had San Malo, even though it's really no longer anything but a marker, but it, it just, just says a lot about the richness of the, the people who have contributed to making of Louisiana. And I think that's, that it's a really fortunate, fortunate thing. Yes. And it just shows all of the different cultures of Louisiana that we don't often know about that might be a little more hidden than others, right? It's, I think the narrative of Louisiana food becomes Cajun and Creole, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, as you know, the Italian, New Orleans Italian food is different from Italian food in New York, right? Totally, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so we have, so the culture here is, is so much richer than people um, often recognize, you know, and a lot of it gets subsumed by this idea of Creole, right? We, you know, but a muffalata is just New Orleans, right? It's not. That's <laughs> right. It's not something you go and get everywhere. And that actually surprised me <laughs> at some point. Like, you know, like you don't know when you grow up in New Orleans that the other people just don't eat what we eat. And it's not just because of resource. It's because of the particular culture. That's right. Yes, I agree. It's hard to duplicate. Well, thank you so much, Randy. This has been a delightful conversation. And I'm looking forward to the exhibit that the Southern Food and Beverage Museum is going to be opening in St. Bernard at Nunez Community College, all about 
San Malo and the Filipino influence on the food of Louisiana. Yeah, we're looking forward to that opening that exhibit. Thanks for having and me. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.